0: Hi, my name is Morgan Maitland, and this is the King and Kingdom podcast, where we study the Bible to know the King and seek first his kingdom. In this series, we focus on understanding the Old Testament. Okay, let's review to this point. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made man and woman in his image to multiply and fill the earth and to rule over the earth on his behalf. Now, following that event, there are two big events that have a similar pattern. The two events are the fall and the flood. The pattern is sin, judgment, redemption, and promise. The big takeaway from these two events is that despite man's sinful rebellion, God provides a way for salvation. He makes unconditional promises to produce a savior from the woman and preserve her offspring by never flooding the earth again. Many nations were scattered after the Tower of Babel event, and out of many, God chooses one, Abram. God makes an unconditional covenant with Abram and further reveals his plan. He promises him individual blessing, That is his presence, prosperity and protection. He promises national blessing that Israel would have a great posterity, many descendants, and they would have a great possession in the land. Finally, he promises international blessing through Abraham's offspring. All the nations will be blessed. We can expect that the promised savior of the world will come through Abraham and his descendants. Now, this covenant promise is passed down from Abraham to Isaac and then to Jacob, who's the father of 12 sons, forming the 12 tribal heads of Israel. Now, the tragic events in Joseph's life are used by God to bring the people of Israel, Jacob's family, to Egypt so that they'd be preserved through a famine. In Egypt, the people of Israel grow to about 2 million over a couple of hundred years, a new pharaoh rises up against Israel and against Israel's God. And he oppresses the people by enslaving them and killing their children. Now this is the impetus for a great movement of God where he saves and sanctifies his people. He gives them three gifts through three events. Liberty through the exodus, law in the wilderness, and land through the conquest. Do you remember where we left off in the last episode? Joshua is standing in front of the next generation and it's time for him to pass the baton. He tells them, be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Don't turn aside from, from it to the right hand nor to the left. Now the question is, will this next generation follow in Joshua's footsteps? Will they finish the conquest of Canaan? This brings us to the book of Judges in your Bible. And I've titled this section, Compromise Leads to Corruption. And I'll show you why in just the first couple chapters of the book. Now God's instructions were clear to the people of Israel. He said, drive out all the pagan nations from the land of Canaan. Now, why? Why did God want them to drive out these pagan nations? Because God didn't want their pagan idolatry to corrupt the people. Deuteronomy chapter 12. So what does the generation following Joshua do? Do they keep those instructions? Well, Judges chapter 1 verse 28 says this. When Israel grew strong... They put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. There we have a compromise. It may seem small, but it is a compromise. God said, clean out the whole house, and they left some rooms dirty. He said, burn all the stock, and they left a few batches untouched. A small compromise is a moral failure and an open door to massive corruption. Listen to what the angel of the Lord says about their compromise. In Judges chapter 2, the angel of the Lord says, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you've done? So now I say, I'll not drive them out before you, but they will become thorns in your sides and their gods shall be a snare to you. Notice that partial obedience is no obedience at all. The angel of the Lord plainly says, you have not obeyed. Now, Israel may have tried to justify their compromise by saying, well, technically, we did conquer these nations. We just didn't kick them out. We, we made them slaves. And God says, nope, that's still disobedience. And, you know, we often try to justify our compromises too, don't we? A little flirting with a coworker, maybe a second look at an inappropriate picture, a little gossip in the church, a sharp comment back, to somebody who disrespects you, those little things don't hurt anybody. They're just little mistakes. Not a big deal. No major concern. Listen, a small crack in the wall of a dam is a serious issue. And if it's not dealt with, it can result in massive structural failure and eventually collapse. The angel of the Lord says these compromises will become thorns and snares that will continue to hurt and eventually trap you. Sure enough, we see it happen. In Judges chapter two, verse 10, it says this, and there arose another generation who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. That's the God of the pagan nations. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. They bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. Exactly what God said would happen, happened. That small compromise, the small compromise of one generation leads to massive corruption in the next. You know, it just takes one generation to undo all the work of the previous one. It takes one generation to absolutely unravel a society. This generation would lead the people of Israel into seven cycles, seven cycles of six steps. Number one, sin. Number two, slavery. Number three, supplication. Number four, salvation. Number five, silence. And then six, rinse and repeat. Go back to number one. This happens seven times from Judges chapter three all the way to chapter 16. The summary is given in in Judges two, the summary of the cycles. It starts with Israel's sin. The people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, Judges 2.11. Then comes slavery, step two. Judges 2.14, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers, and they plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Then supplication, step three. They would cry out to God for help. Judges 2.18, the Lord was moved to pity by their groanings because of those who were afflicted and oppressed. Then step four, salvation. God would raise up judges, Judges 2.16, and these judges would save them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Judges were God's instruments for salvation, war heroes that would save the people of Israel by the power of God and then step 5 silence as long as that judge was living and leading the people in God's righteousness they had peace and then unfortunately the people of Israel would repeat they would go back step 6 judges 219 says whenever the judge died they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods, serving them, bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And so this cycle or these cycles of sin, slavery, supplication, salvation, and silence and repeat happens seven times. Again, from chapters three to chapter 16 of the book of Judges. Now, there are six major judges and six minor judges, but that takes us through the first 16 chapters. It's a low point for the people of Israel. It's a dark spot in their history. And the absolute base of their decline is shown in chapters 17 to 21. There are two stories here that are abominable. The first story is a story full of idolatry, blasphemy, greed, and murderous threats. It's a perfect illustration of how the compromise of allowing foreign idols has twisted and corrupted the minds of Israel. They are mixing religions, not worshiping the one true God, but a God of their own imagination that has been mixed with the Baals. They're at a point where the author says they can't even tell their right hand from their left hand anymore. They are absolutely corrupt to the core. Now the second story is unspeakable. It's Jeffrey Dahmer level horror. It is a horrific illustration of how far sin and corruption will take people. It's the bottom of the barrel. It is the underbelly of human depravity, the worst of the worst. How, how does it get here and why? Why would the author tell us these stories? What what is he trying to teach us through these horrific, horrific illustrations? Well, the answer is in the bookends of these stories. The same line is repeated at the front in chapter 17 and the end in chapter 21. It's this line. Here's the answer. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is the theme of the day of the judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king in Israel. They certainly did not regard God as their king. They did not respect the theocracy. And there was no righteous king in in a man that was over them. By the way this is the path to the end of humanity. If you want to end the human race, let them loose. Convince them that each man's truth is their truth. Do what's right in your own eyes. You might ask, how, how do we get to the place today where children are able to choose their own gender and sexuality? How, how do we get to a place today where there are They're placing literally litter boxes and bathrooms for children who identify as cats and dogs. How do we get to a place where a man like Jeffrey Dahmer becomes a cultural icon? I'll tell you how. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. If you want to, this is for my Lord of the Rings fans, if you want to build up Morador, this is how you do it. You build a trench underneath society that says, do what's right in your own eyes at the end of that path mount doom will burst and everything will break into chaos think about the big picture here when everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes they are not doing what's right in god's eyes they have come to total corruption the whole nation god has every reason to cancel his covenants he has every reason To say, you know what, enough is enough. I'm flooding the earth again, except for the promises that he made and the promises that he keeps. Amidst this horror, there is a diamond in the rough. And it comes to us in the form of a Moabite woman named Ruth. Now, the story of Ruth takes place in the time of the judges and she is a critical link in God's covenant chain. Ruth's a great short story, and there's many moral principles to glean from it. Uh, Ruth is loyal to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Uh, More importantly, even though she is a Moabite, she is loyal to Naomi's God. She professes faith in Yahweh, and she has a wonderful work ethic, Boaz, uh, the human hero of the story, he is a godly man amidst a generation that is crooked and corrupt. He's a man of integrity. He goes through the right processes to redeem Ruth and and to marry her. And, And Ruth, who loses her husband and seemingly everything else, is redeemed by this man, Boaz. And she is grafted into the Hebrew family. Naomi's line and her land is saved in this process. And there is a happy ending in the marriage ceremony. But the point of the story of Ruth actually goes past the marriage ceremony at the end. At the end of the book, in verses 13 to 22, we are told that Boaz and Ruth conceive and they bear a son. And they named their son Obed. Verse 17, and Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. And then the author gives a genealogy from Perez all the way down to Obed, Jesse, and David. Now, why is that significant? Think back with me. Who is Perez's father? Well, Perez's father is Judah, Genesis chapter 49. Do you remember the blessing that was promised to Judah's clan? They were promised that the scepter would not depart from the tribe of Judah. There was an expectation of a king coming from the line of Judah. And of course, down through Perez and for Perez all the way down to Boaz and Boaz with Ruth, they bear Obed and Obed, Jesse and Jesse, who David, a king is coming and Ruth, this short story, this Gentile Moabite woman who has faith in Yahweh. She's grafted into the family of Israel and she is placed in in the line of royalty God preserves his seed through this woman this diamond in the rough so while the whole world has gone mad while it's totally corrupt and everybody is worshiping idols and given over into sinful corruption God keeps his promises he preserves the royal line, a king is coming. Now, who is this king? How will the plan unfold? What is the next phase in God's big plan? Well, we will see in the next phase of Old Testament history when we look at the time of the monarchy for the king and his kingdom.